This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Don't just teach a lesson, create an experience for kids. Like lessons are easily forgotten, but experiences live forever. I wanna to try to add an LCL into everything that I teach, a life-changing lesson. So by focusing on those life-changing lessons and that mightier, embracing that mightier purpose of being an educator, embracing your role as, as a life changer, then that's something that can help you bring energy and enthusiasm into everything you do. Even on those days where maybe the content is not something that you're particularly passionate about or enthusiastic about it. Today's interview with author, speaker, and publisher Dave Burgess is going to be a game changer because in our 40-minute conversation, he dropped so much knowledge and so much wisdom that I took two pages of notes and I listened to that episode again and again. Have you ever wondered the secret to creating rapport in one minute? How about what it truly means to achieve success? How do you rethink your personal brand so that you're really coming across in an authentic way? And everyone has one. You can either get intentional about it or have someone else create it for you. And how can you guard against perfectionism and the myth that you are not creative? This is an absolutely incredible episode. I'm so proud to have Dave Burgess on the show with us today. Dave is the New York Times bestselling author of Teach Like a Pirate, a multiple award-winning teacher from San Diego, California, who specializes in hard-to-reach students. He is a sought-after speaker across the world, having spoken at TED and numerous educational conferences. You can find out more about Dave Burgess by searching his name, searching Dave Burgess Consulting, Inc., or you can search for him on Twitter at Burgess Dave. And if you want to follow him on Instagram, it's DBC underscore Inc. Check him out. It's well worth it. Thank you for joining me today, Dave Burgess. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. So I actually want to start with music. It's possible that people don't know this about you, but before you were a teacher, an author, a book publisher, and a prolific speaker, you were a hip hop MC. So Sadly, I came up short on actually trying to find you performing, but I know that you've shared Tupac Shakur on Twitter and that your favorite sound is the beat of an 808 drum. So tell me what's on your playlist when you get pumped up before you go to speak with educators. Oh, yeah. You know what? So that changes all the time. Um, I love Public Enemy, one of my favorite uh uh, rap groups. Uh, I love Jay-Z songs. I love the Black Album by Jay-Z. A lot of songs on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of my favorites. I love Paris. I went to college with a uh, hip-hop artist named Paris, politically conscious rap artist from the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's Paris on there. Um, and yeah, all, all sorts of things. It, cha- it changes all the time. But those, those are a few of the ones that you find on a, my frequent playlist. Awesome. And you're a fan of music as a catalyst for like changing your mental state, right? So you've stated in your amazing book, Teach Like a Pirate, that we really have to deal with the circumstances that we're handed, right? We, we really have to be in control of our own state. So talk to me a little bit about how Tony Robbins inspired you to think a little differently about the way you enter a classroom or a speaking gig. Yes, absolutely. So this is something that I learned from Tony and 
he basically says there's two ways that you can control your state. One way is by what you focus on. And what we focus on creates our reality. And so when you walk into the classroom, for example, if you are, there's any number of things that you could focus on in any situation that you are in life. There's going to be good things and bad things in any situation. And where you choose to put your lens and where, where you choose to focus is going to absolutely determine your reality. And so where I choose to focus on creating empowering experiences for kids, life-changing lessons, I call them adding LCLs. I want to try to add an LCL into everything that I teach, a life-changing lesson. So by focusing on those life-changing lessons and that mightier embracing that mightier purpose of being an educator of the of embracing your role as, as a life changer then that's something that can help you bring energy and enthusiasm into everything you do even on those days where maybe the content is not something that you're particularly passionate about or enthusiastic about it so so controlling your focus the other thing that he said is controlling your physiology so this is a secret like if you want to be a more enthusiastic and dynamic speaker, then speak in a more enthusiastic and dynamic way. If you want to move your body in a more enthusiastic and dynamic way. And when you change your physiology, you, it's actually a shortcut to changing your state. We're aware of this because, for example, we've all been in that place where maybe you're at home and you're sitting on the couch and you can barely keep your eyes open. Like your eyes are about to shut and you can't even possibly imagine staying awake. You know, maybe the remote control slips out of your hands and, and hits the ground and startles you a little bit. You can't imagine being awake. But then in one phone call, maybe you get a phone call and someone says, hey, you forgot to pick your children up. <laughs> in that one instant, in that one instant, your state can change. Why? Because it's something that you focused on. Now all of a sudden you can go from a place instantly where you can't even imagine going to sleep because you're so like, oh my gosh, I have to go get my kids right now. And you're grabbing your keys and you're running out the door and, and sleep is the furthest thing from your mind. That's just something you focused on. And the same thing with your physiology. We, when you see people, you know, sometimes uh, someone will come up to me and say, I just, I just can't understand why students are just, they just don't seem to be into my subject matter. And you see them with their hunched shoulders and like speaking in a, um, um, uh, monotone and their heads down, lack of eye contact. And, you know, I just want to say to them, yeah, I just can't even possibly imagine how a student could not be excited about being in your class with the enthusiasm <laughs> that you're bringing. Enthusiasm is contagious. So you're, how you move, your physiology, all those things are contagious. And so if you want to change your state quickly, uh, get up and move. Absolutely. No, that's so good. I love that. And I think about your enthusiasm for performance and presentation. It didn't really stop at the music. You were a magician and you often tie magic into the work that you do for educators and encourage them to sort of bring elements of that, the awe into their practice as well. So what's your take? Because I've had some magicians on the show, actually. It's kind of funny because this is a this is an educator podcast. However, I have had people who are magicians professionally come on the show. And what I've come to realize is magic and teaching is really similar. Like magic and learning is so similar. What do you, do you see sort of a correlation between the two? What's your take on that? Absolutely. So I think it goes to the presentational aspect of teaching. And so in Teach Like a Pirate, I talk about there's a triple bin diagram of teaching. Mm -hmm. One of those circles is content. We have to have that circle or we're just entertainers or babysitters, right? But there's all sorts of ways you can learn your content. Then there's a, this other circle of techniques and methods. And we have this whole toolbox of techniques and methods that we have it, that we get as teachers from, you know, trainings, conferences, from our colleagues and credential programs, all these different things, right? And so there's those two circles. But then there's this third circle that, that people don't talk about that third circle of presentation so yeah you know your content and you have all these techniques and methods but now how are you going to present it in such a way that's engaging for kids how are you going to present it in such a way that is relevant
relevant for them? How are you going to present it in such a way that it draws them almost magically or magnetically into what you're doing in your class? That's the third circle that I like to talk about with Teach Like a Pirate. And so the same thing can be true of a magician. Like a magician has their the, the content of their trick, they have their techniques and methods, maybe sleight of hand, and a lot of those things are invisible to the audience, right? And they, they're designed to be invisible to the audience. Mm -hmm. But then you can have someone who's very highly skilled technically as a magician, but they fail in front of an audience because they don't focus enough on the presentation, uh, presentational aspects. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you can always tell like an amateur magician from a professional magician, is an am amateur magician might have the skill set of the professional, but the professional also has the presentation, which draws the audience in. And I think the same thing is true as teachers. So a lot of teachers have the know the techniques, a lot of teachers know the content, but the really top teachers are the one that also know that presentation is a big part of what we do as well. Yes, I think that's so important. And actually, part of it too is that connecting with the audience, right? Build, building that rapport. And you're so good at that. I mean, just in any video that I've seen, you bring the energy and you pull people in and you create that sense of rapport. And it it does feel like it's a hard thing to do if you're not used to it. And it probably comes from a sense of empathy too, like being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Do you have any maybe tips or tricks for people who want to get better at building rapport with their students or even with their colleagues and other stakeholders in the educational community? Yeah, so I think that a lot of uh, rapport happens around the edges of in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So one of my one of my favorite things I like to say is that uh, one minute spent informally with a student is worth ten hours of of uh, of, of class time. Mm -hmm. So one minute in a conversation with a student, that, it's that student that why, that shows up early in your classroom, the one that is uh, hanging out around the desk, the conversation you have in the hallway with the student, the conversation you have at the snack stand when you show up at the extracurricular event, or at, in the stands, or in the parking lot at the football game. Like all those little, all that time around the edges is when you can really build strong rapport and relationships with the kids. Coaches know this, people that run programs like musical programs and theater, they know this. One of the reasons that they have such strong bonds with students is because there's so much edge time. There's, you know, bus trips to games and to events and stretching out in the hallway before you go into the gym if you're a basketball coach or whatever. They have lots of time with students around the edges, right? And classroom teachers don't have that same amount of edge time. And so they have to always be looking for ways that they can build some of that time in and take advantage and capitalize on some of that time. That's why, for example, my first lesson of the whole school year is the Play-Doh lesson, mm -hmm. where oddly enough, the teacher does very little. It's the, t the, the kids have a chance to make and create with their Play-Doh something that's somehow representative of them, and that frees the teacher up to go around and have an individual conversation with every single kid at their desk on the very first day of school. The very first day of school, you get to have an informal conversation one-on-one -on -one at the desk with a student about something that they're creating and learn something a little bit about them. And so I, I think that's important to try to grasp as much of that edge time as we can. Absolutely. And speaking of coaching, because I know that this is something that you have a background in, you actually worked with John Wooden, the John Wooden, for three summers, I believe, doing doing the basketball camps with him. And I think about the way that I've listened to many podcasts and interviews with him. Actually, Tony Robbins interviews him in this like amazing two-part series. And his philosophy in life was pretty remarkable. What did you pull from your experience with him that you carried into your philosophy around teaching like a pirate? Yeah, so I, my, my very first job ever 
was working three summers for John Wooden at his basketball camps. And so that was an incredible experience. I got to see him interact with campers and with parents, uh, you know, week after week after week for three summers. And for sure, one of the things that I took away is uh, his pyramid of success. So every the opening of every single camp, the campers would sit on the floor and the parents would sit in the bleachers and John Wooden would deliver his pyramid of success. And I've seen him probably do it, uh, I don't maybe 25 or 30 times, and I learned something different every time because it was it's so amazing. And it, one of the key parts of it, I think, for me, is his definition of success. And it's important as a coach, it's important as a person. It's, his definition of success is about that it's that you're it's about you living up to your full potential and doing the most that you possibly can. Like if you have a basketball team, it's not your win-loss record that is should be your definition of success because maybe you had the best talent and you happen to win all the games, but you never lived up to your potential as a team, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you, you go one in 20 in your year, but really, you should have been probably zero and 21 if you look at the talent of your team. <laughs> you over, you over, the, that, the one in 20 coach may have overachieved and been successful as opposed to the coach that went 20 and one, but should have easily gone 21 and zero with the talent they had, right? right. And it reminds me of this, and I'm not sure who to even to attribute this quote to, but the uh, it's kind of this story that's been passed along and there's lots of people that, that take credit for it, but this is the basic quote. A coach was asked after us uh, whether they'd had a successful season, and the coach just looked at the reporter and said, I won't know for another 10 years. Wow. <laughs> In other words, but what happened in the season, what was, wasn't so important, but the kind of the character building and the skill set and the and the mindset that was instilled over that course of the year, we won't know until we see what happens to these these players ten years from now. That's how we will will really judge our success. So that was one thing. The other thing is the importance of uh, every single the, the smallest things. He would start. Now this sounds ridiculous for a division one. You know the best maybe the best basketball coach of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, national championships year after year after year. He started every single team and camp showing kids how to put their socks on really and the, the eye showing them how to put their socks on and how to smooth out the wrinkles from the bottom not to get blisters and things like this and that was a super important point he was making is that every single attention to detail every single thing is important it's not about the big stuff right it's about the it's about doing all the little stuff with the same amount of attention that you put on onto the big stuff that you give to the big stuff and so he would show people how to put their socks on and this seems like a ridiculous thing to show a division 1 college athlete right but it was that mindset that he's trying to say everything we do here is about excellence everything we do here is about being the best that we possibly can be about living up to our full potential and it starts with something as small as this and it's going to it's going it's going it's going to carry across every single thing that we do and so there's those are some lessons that i learned from uh, coach wooden for sure yeah and totally applicable to school obviously because i mean if you can break it down and not make assumptions about what kids come in with in terms of their experience or their understanding of how to do things or any of that you can kind of level the playing field a little bit for kids which is huge i think we sometimes underestimate that power that we have to show kids this is a way you can do it maybe they've never had that exposure before yeah absolutely i think you're right 
So I want to explore a little bit the fact that you often encourage people to look outside of their professions in order to gain insight and be more innovative in their field. So I think about the way that you reference a lot of non-educators in your book on Twitter. I know that you are a huge fan of Maya Angelou and actually got to see her live, which is incredible when she was she was still with us. And so I guess I wonder, like, I totally agree with your philosophy in this and, and I'd love for... I'd love to have other people sort of jump on board as well. What is the value of looking outside of education in order to be better educators? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things with this. First of all, uh, we work in a job where we can never be done. That's dangerous. We can never be done. Like, when was the last time you ever heard a teacher say, I've actually got everything all set for the next few weeks? <laughs> like, it, it just doesn't happen, right? Yeah, there's sure. always something more that we could do. Plus, we know how important what we do is. That's a dangerous combination because it makes us feel guilty at time that we spend outside of education. But every time I've honored my outside passions or interests or been willing to develop new ones, it's always come back to inform my teaching. It's always come back to make me a better teacher because it's given me creative ammunition from other areas in life to bring back into my school system and back into my classroom. And so, like for example, that's why I, tell, I teach like a pirate is a strange book. There's not one education book reference inside of it. Not because I don't like education books, I published them. It's because that's not where it came from. It was my background, you mentioned several already. My background as a, a coach influenced how I break down instruction and how I give feedback to students. My background as a magician influenced my sense of staging and showmanship and incorporation of props and things like this. My background as a marketer and entrepreneur influenced how, like how a marketer creates buzz for a new product or service. I create buzz for my lessons. I'm using marketing techniques in, in the classroom. My background as an MC, like if you were to see me do a professional development workshop, you would quickly, you know, you might ask yourself, wait a second, is this a professional development or is this a show? Like what mm -hmm. if I just walked in here right now? Mm -hmm. and, and so, because my background as an MC has influenced my speaking style. I'm a person who's used to speaking in a fast and flourishy way on a microphone in front of people. And so all those things have influenced my speaking style. And so what I try to encourage teachers is all those things have come together to create the best me. But Teach Like a Pirate is not about you teaching like me. Teach Like a Pirate is about taking your strengths and your talent and your voice and adding them with these human nature ideas that I'm talking about, Teach Like a Pirate, and these things that students are interested in and combining all that together to create the best you. So you don't have to be a somersault, cartwheel, run up and down aisles teacher like me to teach like a pirate. You take what, what is unique about you, your strengths and talents, your voice that you you add to your classroom is what's going to always make you most powerful and effective with students. And so it's a mindset of looking around the world and saying, how can I use that? Like what do other professions use to engage in their line of work? How can I use that in my line of work? What are kids into outside of school? How can I use that inside of school? So always looking around the world and, and with this mindset of how can I use that? How can this make me a more effective teacher? How can this make me better in my classroom? How can this make me connect with kids? And so, or help me connect with kids. And so that's, that's kind of the mindset that I, I look at it with. Okay, you've got me pretty fired up now. It makes me want to go right back into the classroom. We're on summer break right now, but this is so good. And I just think, yeah, we really need to be exploring those options and really thinking about them to get us reinvigorated about our careers. Because I think sometimes when we get stuck in the curricular expectations and the standardized testing, it can get soup, we can get super overwhelmed, right? So I'd like to talk a little bit about your hooks. You I mean, your pirate analogy is is awesome. And I think that that really fits in while you talk about your pirate hooks. And these are some of the ways that you basically open it up so that people can really delve into their practice and access 
a particular tip or a question that can drive them just a little further in that creativity? Because I think sometimes people think they're inherently uncreative, right? So can you, I know there are so many, I think there's 30 or or more hooks that you offer in the book, along with questions that really probe people to go further. Can you share one or two of your favorite hooks that really, as you say, put handles on learning? So like that Velcro that really makes stuff stick? Yeah. So for example, I have one called the teaser hook. And this ties into, it could be the board message hook, it could be, there's all sorts of things that ties together with this. But basically it comes down to this. And it's that, um, like I don't put I don't put my steak down on a cold grill. Because when you drop your steak on a cold grill, nothing happens, right? Yeah. I put my steak down, I, I preheat my grill. Because when you drop your steak on a preheated grill, what happens? It sizzles. It sizzles. Right, it's, it sizzles. I want my content to sizzle when I drop it. So I always preheat the grill. But that mystery, curiosity, buzz, anticipation before we begin. So it could be as simple as what do you say, what are you going to say today that makes them excited and, and, and have a sense of anticipation, a buzz about what's going to happen tomorrow? So what do you say when they're leaving the room that's going to make them excited about tomorrow? Mm. What do you have written on your board when they walk in that has them going like, oh my God, what is, what is that? What, is, what does she mean by that? Like, what are we going to, I wonder what we're going to be talking about today. Or what do you have like uh, on display at the front of your room? The box that has, that says, do not open until 10 15 on the, <laughs> and the people, what, what's inside that box? Like, why? Well, I guess we're not going to know until 10 15, right? And then you see the kids watching as it hits 10 14 and tick, 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 right? And you see all the eyes up at the clock, right? And so that's an example of the teaser hook is things that what, how can you create mystery, curiosity, buzz, and anticipation, right? You know, we always preheat the grill. And to go further into that analogy with the steak, I do this all the time in the teacher like a presentation is uh like if you it, you don't serve raw steak to someone right nope, nope. um and you, you always you, you you have to turn on the propane you have to bring a little heat and energy to it right and then not only that if you were really coming to my house I, before you got there i would have put some seasoning on this and i would have soaked it in a flavor marinade right and then i would preheat the and then part way through i would turn over i would base the other side and then when i served it to you i would offer you side dishes to go with it a beverage to drink and when all that was done i would offer you dessert right yeah. and that's what we would call a meal that's what we would call a dining experience together right but in education people try to convince you that that rub the seasoning the marinating the preheating the grill the basting the other side the side dishes the beverages and desserts those things are a waste of time because they're not the meat of the less they're not the content standard of the lesson but all those presentational touches that we add that richness that we add is what's is what's super important that's what creates the dining experience for a person and that's what creates the learning experience for a student it makes it makes kids want to come back and learn with you the next day too and so i always say like there's lots of teachers who know everything about their content i mean oh my god they know so much about their content right, right. but then they walk into class with their raw steak plop it down on the table in front of kids and say, eat it. Right. <laughs> and, and, but no, and, and they can't understand why they're having issues connecting with the kids. They can't understand why kids aren't excited about the content, why they're you know having uh, behavior management issues and all that kind of stuff. It's because they didn't take the time, the energy to add that richness to it. And so that's a big part of what the, these hooks are about. What teach like a pirate is saying, like, it's not anti-curriculum or anti-standards. We're going to do that. But it's saying, that's not enough. That's the bare minimum. That's where we start, right? That's the raw steak. Now we have to add our personal energy to it. We have to add our creativity, our our seasoning, our rub, our side dishes, beverages, desserts, and all these things to create a broader experience. Don't just teach a lesson, create an experience for kids. Like lessons are easily forgotten, but experiences live forever, right? And so it's always about taking that content and taking it to that next level and creating a, a rich experience around it. 
Amazing. And I think the way that you do that with all the senses too really anchors it in. And I think that's so true. And essentially what you're doing when you talk about teaching this way, it's really about gaining enrollment from students, which is about sales. It's about marketing. So I think educators often forget that what they do involves a certain amount of marketing and sales. And you mentioned this in your book, like you're essentially selling kids on those first three days. And I don't know that everybody thinks about it that way or even understands how to go about doing that, making their lessons, their their program exciting and something that kids want to enroll with. So what are some questions that educators can ask themselves to raise that bar on their own teaching? Yeah, so I think one of the ones that we can ask is, uh, is, is about relevance. And so we don't want to spend, you know, you hear, you'll hear teachers complaining about time spent in uh, meetings and in maybe uh, staff development time that was not relevant for them. And, um, you know, teachers can be a tough audience, right? If they don't mm-hmm. think that they're getting, if they don't, they don't think what is being presented is relevant to them, you'll, you'll see them doing all sorts of stuff, right? Yes. And I, 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 was, I, I was the same way, right? I, and, and so why do we think kids are any different? They want, to, they want to feel that what they're learning is relevant as well. And so if the best answer you have for a student is why do I, they ask, why do I need to know this? If the best answer you have is because it's on the test, then that's not a very good answer, right? Right. And so I think that one of the things that we can do is try to create relevance and try to show kids why doing something is important. Um, and that's one of the questions. And uh, But I just think it goes to this, this mindset of, again – we have our content, and th- I get mad when people talk about um, marketing techniques, sales, promotion, branding as being a bad thing. Right, exactly. Brand, you, everyone has a brand. Every school has a brand. Every teacher has a brand. Every person has a, a personal brand. And you can reject it. You can say you don't have it. You can say you don't care about it. That doesn't mean that you don't have it because – you, you, and you can either be intentional about it or you can have that brand created for you, okay? And so a brand is just how you portray yourself to the world and how the world perceives you. That's basically what a brand is. And so you can either be intentional about that or you can let it happen for you. And so, um, like, for example, you maybe you'll hear, hear someone on social media say, well, that's the, they're just trying to promote their book. Mm-hmm. Or they're just trying to promote their podcast or their professional development speaking or whatever it might be. And I push back on this all the time because, listen, it, if you – like I, I'll tell an author, look, you have a book, right? Do you think it would be – do you think you did powerful work? And obviously the answer is going to be yes, right? Do you think that teachers will be better off if they read your book? And, of course, their answer is, is yes. Mm-hmm. And so then I said, well, then listen. It's not just okay for you to share it. You have a moral imperative to share it. Right. And not only do you have a moral imperative to share it, you have a moral imperative to get good at sharing it too and to do all the work that's necessary to learn about that marketing and entrepreneurship and all these and promotion and things like this to get good at sharing it. Because if you believe that your message getting into more people's hands would be a positive thing and you don't do what's necessary to do that because of some issue you have with not wanting to stand out or feeling like self-promotion or egotistical, then that's a problem. And I, I'll, I'll tell you in a, a story that I really – if someone's really resistant to this, 
uh, this is an over-the-top story, but I'm kind of an over-the-top person, right? <laughs> I say, like, if, if you're at a party, if you're standing at a party, a crowded party, and someone on the other room, or the other side of the room, drops down to the ground and stops breathing, and you know CPR, would it be egotistical or self-promotional for you to make it known very clearly that you could help that person? Of course, if you yeah. pushed your way through the crowd to get over there, would people think that you were being a bully or, or being like, oh my gosh, look at them. They're always trying to stand out at a party and be the per like be the life of the party, right? No, of course, they would treat you as a hero when you arrived because you had exactly what that person needed at that moment at that time in order to save them. And so the same thing is true. If you have something that you think can help others, other people it's again it's not just okay to share it. you have a moral imperative to share it and so I, I really try to, to push back on this idea that people are being promotional if you have something that's good it's like uh, Dan Pink talks about in to sell as human yeah right it's that the the old the stereotype of the salesperson is someone who's trying to give, get you to buy something that you don't want and that you don't need right well, of course that's bad, but if you have something that can help other people and you do the, the work that's necessary to get the, get it into their hands at a fair price and you're giving them more value than what they're giving back in return, then that's not a, that's not a bad interaction. That's a positive interaction that should be encouraged in the world, not dis, not discouraged. What do you think, why do you think people are reticent to share? I mean, you kind of touched on it, but it's almost like the unwillingness to shine your light. What do you think's behind that when people are sort of not able to step into who they fully are on the world stage like that? So I think it comes from a couple of things. One, they're, they're afraid that possibly they're going to become a target, mm -hmm. which is in some cases is some cases true again. And, um, that if you put your work into the world, um, not everyone's going to like it, but the cool thing is that is not everybody needs to like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when someone says, and th this is something that I, I, you know, I learned from Seth Godin yes. and he talks about like Amazon reviews and it, you know, in the, if you look at any book that you maybe you, go look at your favorite books, no matter what the topic is and look at the Amazon reviews, no matter, it, it could be the book that changed your life. But yet there's someone who gave it a one star, going to be a whole group of people who gave it a one star review and said it was the most horrific thing in, in the history of the world. But it was a book that changed your life. And so like his attitude is that uh, you, what you say when you see that is say, OK, well, it was, I didn't write it for them. That, it, what, the book was not for them. And so a book doesn't have to be for everybody. Write the book for the people that you're trying to reach, for your audience. Right. And then if other people don't get it, that's OK. It wasn't for them. That just shows that it wasn't for them. And um, but you'll see like on social media sometimes, like if I see something I don't like on social media, I have this amazing technique that I've learned. You know what I can do? I can scroll. <laughs> I can scroll past it, right? And I can find stuff that I do like that, that and I can find the people that I am, uh, the, like my crew. And be like, but other people, when they see something they don't like on, on social media, they have this unbelievable like need to think that they have to tell the whole world that they don't like it and to be upset because somebody said something or put something in the world that they didn't like, right? I, when I see that, I just scroll. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't understand why that's such a difficult concept for people. I just think that's so brilliant. I think you dropped some real nuggets of wisdom right there. And you know I'm a 
big Seth Godin fan. I coach for him online and love that approach. I think it's changed my life, that idea that you do not have to be for everybody and you don't have to wait for people to pick you. I think it's a fundamental game changer. And I think a lot of it is rooted in this sense of perfectionism. And when I saw in your book that you had the Teddy Roosevelt quote and you talked about perfectionism, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is literally the book that every teacher does need to read. That is such an important piece, that idea that really nobody really gets to have a say on on your work unless they're in there, in the arena, getting dirty, getting beat up, being imperfect alongside you. What's your take on perfectionism and our limitations because of it? Yeah. Yeah, so perfectionism is one of the biggest things that stifles people's creativity. And it's uh, they don't put work into the world because they say, well, it's not quite right yet. Well, it's never going to be right. The timing is never going to be right. The work is never going to be perfect. And so if that is your standard, then that's a stand, that, that you're using that to hide from the world. And that's, a, you know, that's very central to uh, Seth's work as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, that people will often say that, no, 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 I'm working on this. Like I'm, 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 I'm doing the work. Well, what they're really doing is they're hiding behind the idea that you're using perfectionism as a way to hide. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is like he always recommends the, uh, the War of Art, which is a fantastic book. And, you know, and they talk about that in that book as well as, as being the resistance, right? There's all these things that will come to you that, as the resistance and they seem plausible. You make them sound plausible in your mind. This is the reason I'm not putting my work in the world. It's, it's a plausible reason, but it's, it's, it's really not. And so, uh, you have to understand, like a teacher will tell me, um, I had a teacher tell me they were going to quit the profession. And they said this was not for them. They couldn't possibly be successful. I say, wait a second. Tell me what happened. (laughs) And you can probably guess what happened. They gave a lesson and we're like 29 of the kids were wildly engaged into it. One kid popped off. Mm. One kid was a behavior problem. One kid was an issue. They walked away from that experience feeling like a failure. 29 out of 30 of their students were wildly engaged and loved it. One kid didn't like it. They thought they they saw themselves as a failure. And so if you set up your rubric for success. This is what I, this is what I need to feel successful is 100% engagement from 100% of all kids on 100% of the days. What you have now done is you've just set up a rubric that is designed to guarantee failure Mm. in your career and in your life. Right. And so it's never about perfection. It's always about getting better. And so it's always about being willing to put work out into the world. That's that that's imperfect and then growing along the way. And so I'm absolutely a firm believer in uh, Seth thinking on that. Yeah. So before we get to those rapid fire questions, we're kind of nearing the end and I want to be respectful of your time. I'd love to talk about DBC Inc. I'd love to talk about the world of publishing that you've entered into and you're crushing right now. I think you have around 80 titles that you've published, which is unbelievable. And it really came about early on in your Pro D career, actually, even before you were really, really like before your name was really out there and someone, a book publisher had approached you with a book deal and you looked into the fine print and decided it would be way better to self-publish and you went on to publish other books. I'd love for you to talk about that process a little bit and some of the things that you look for in potential new books. Yeah. So, so a lot of times uh, innovation comes out of frustration 
and it comes out of, um, and, and this is, uh, Tim Ferriss has a quote that I love. Basically, he says, as an entrepreneur, one of the things that you can, that you should do is to scratch your own itch. Yeah. And so you should, you know, what a great place to look for um, entrepreneurial ideas is to solve problems that you have. Because if you have that problem, not only are you expert in what would be necessary to solve it, you you also, you can probably guarantee that if you're having that problem, other people are having that same issue as well. And so if you can solve it for yourself, there's probably other people that would be interested. And so I took that entrepreneurial idea and so I was frustrated by the publishing industry. I think it's based on an outdated model. And so whenever you see something that's based on an outdated model, it's time to disrupt it. So we said, we're gonna, we're gonna disrupt this publishing industry. And so we, we just, we took uh, the, I wrote Teach Like a Pirate, and we published it right from a laptop at the kitchen table, right off the kitchen table. Wow. And, and then in the process of learning how to get that message to spread, we learned a ton of stuff about publishing, marketing, and all that. And so other people started to come to us and say, hey, we don't wanna sign those contracts either. And so we said, you know what, here we go. We're gonna start signing these people. We'll put their books out just like we did Teach Like a Pirate. And so now I still run the business with my wife, Shelly, and we run it right out of our house to this day. We have over 80 books uh, out on the market right now. And, um, and so uh, it, now what we've done is tried to amplify the impact of other people. So at first it was about Teach Like a Pirate and me trying to amplify my message. And now our energy is spent finding, trying to find other people with powerful messages and help them amplify their impact. And so that's kind of what we do with David Consulting. Um, you've had some of our authors on, like George Kuros. Yes. I wrote The Innovator's Mindset and just put out um, Innovate um, Inside the Box. Yes. And you've had Tamara Letter yep. uh, with Passion for Kindness. And I'm not sure if you have some others as well. But I have Jimmy uh, coming next week. Oh, yeah. I have Jimmy Costas coming on. Awesome. Yep. I have uh, several books with Jimmy. And so... Yeah, so that's kind of the journey of my entrepreneurial journey was as a solo entrepreneur to begin with, but then now trying to help other people and help them spread their messages into the world. Awesome. And how do you know when you, because I know your inbox is just full of manuscripts now because you're not approaching people anymore. People are basically bombarding you with their ideas. What is it that you look for? Like, how do you know that an idea is worthwhile giving a second look? Yeah, so we have a whole, we have seven things that we look for that we go through with all prospective authors, and it comes down to, uh, if I could sum up in one word, I would say manifesto. We want someone to write their manifesto, right? We don't, we want, we don't want them to write something they're a little interested in or think it's going to sell well or something like that, right? Or sometimes people will come to us and say, hey, I want to write a book for you. I love all your stuff. Like, what are you looking for? And that's never our person, right? Our person has, a, has something inside of them that they just cannot wait to share with the world. It's just, it's just like pouring out of their – it's like coming right out of them and they're just looking for the best way to spread it. And that's what we're really good at. And so manifesto is this word that gets a really bad rap in the world today. And because when you usually hear it, and unfortunately there was a recent example of it, when you usually hear it, it's on the news. Mm -hmm. When someone maybe has killed a bunch of people and they say – and they left a manifesto in their basement or they left a manifesto on their computer or something like that. But we look at it in the positive sense. That this is your legacy. This is your mic drop. This is your moment, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody likes lukewarm. <laughs> and so if you're going to write a book, like if you're going to write a book, like write a book. 
And so our books do not have that doctoral dissertation feel. They don't sound like a textbook. They feel like someone who's really passionate about something, really excited about something, and has something to share with the world, it, it, is, it can't wait to tell it to you. And that's the way that our books uh, sound, and that's what we absolutely look for when we're looking for authors. Amazing. And I have totally had that experience when I read any of them, is that I come away going, oh, I got to get back in there and try some of these tactics, or I got to try some of these ideas, because you just they're really inspiring, right? And so that's the common thread that I've experienced as well. So I do want to zip to the rapid fire questions. But before I do, I just want to give you a chance to tell us where people can find you and your work. Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Burgess Dave. My name just flipped around to Burgess Dave. The hashtag people people often use is TLAP for teach like a pirate TLAP. It's a worldwide community of educators. Um, if you're an Instagram person, you can find me at DBC underscore INC. DBC for Dave Burgess Consulting underscore Inc. And uh, I'm at DaveBurgess.com. And also you can find the company at DaveBurgessConsulting.com. Awesome. And before we do, did you want to add anything? Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to leave the listeners with in terms of a message or something to keep their mind on as they follow through the week? Yeah, you know what? So I love what you are doing with the podcast and you've chosen to take the time to spread your message and to, to increase and amplify your impact in the world. And I would encourage uh, people to do the same thing with their message. And then what you have, uh, a lot of people think that maybe what they have is not unique enough or maybe is not special enough, but it absolutely is. And so I encourage you to to ship your work, whether if you're a writer, write, if you're a speaker, speak, if you're a podcaster, podcast, but whatever it is, get your work out into the world. Thank you so much for saying that. And I totally agree about just do it. Just get out there. What does kindness mean to you? I think I'm going to take a different tact on it. I'm going to tell you what kindness does not mean to me. Mm. Um, Kindness does not mean weakness. And I see some people trying to portray it as weakness or the, or if someone is pushing kindness, they think that that maybe doesn't mean that they are uh, uh, willing to stand up to oppression or the, or, or to fight for social justice or any of those things. And these things, it's a false dichotomy that keep people have created. Some people create around kindness. There's absolute strength in kindness. And, uh, you know, when Brene Brown talks about, the, the courage there is in vulnerability, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think some people have misunderstood, like some people see vulnerability as weakness when actually there's incredible strength and courage behind it. I think the same thing is true of kindness and kindness absolutely, absolutely can change the world. And so um, that's, I think I would go with the opposite side of that one. Awesome. What one skill or superpower do you think an educator needs to lead with in order to be effective? You know, it's actually one that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I think it's empathy, Mm. the ability to see things from other people's perspective and to put themselves in other people's shoes. As teachers, I think that's so important with our students and as leaders with, uh, you know, those those that we lead and those that are following us. So I think empathy. And Dave, what quote would you print on one of those quote cups that could be sold in bookstores around the world? You know, we also foreshadowed this one, too, because one of my favorite quotes in the world comes from Seth Godin. And so it's reject the tyranny of pit. Pick Mm. yourself. Yes, I love that quote, too. Dave Burgess, this has been a total pleasure, an absolute inspiration. And I feel 
really excited for this upcoming year. Thank you so much for bringing it, bringing your energy and sharing so much wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I love your show. I listen to it all the time and it was an honor to be on it. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.